Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing today? Well, I'm John Markovic. I am professor of history, European, mod, modern European history and church history at Andrews University. I was born in what used to be Yugoslavia, came to this country in 1969. I was born in the Seventh-day Adventist family, if you, somebody is interested in that. I'm still a Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, I will be presenting uh, to you a subject that some of you are familiar with. <coughs> Excuse me. Most of you heard of the emerging church movement or the emerging church phenomenon. But what I'm going to present to you today and, to, and this afternoon will most likely go beyond what you have ever heard before. We are talking about some very fundamental changes taking place in society. And we can compare it to somewhat like uh, imagine when tectonic plates move, what happens? earthquake takes place. And this metaphor or comparison, analogy with tectonic place is done by many scholars. They argue that what we are experiencing in the last 50, 60 years, to be more precise, it's, they identify, most scholars identify that the, these so-called tectonic changes have been taking place since about the 1960s and it goes on, and it affects the church as well. And it is only approximately by the year 2000 that we have something begins to manifest, actually to become tangible, to be visible, and people begin to and call it the emerging church. So, I, I have a number of slides here that I am going, basically I'm going to read the slides because, and you follow on the screen, the reason I'm doing that is because I have to hold myself to well, in advance prepared talk. Otherwise, I may get into details and never complete the subject matter in 45 minutes. Last semester, this spring semester, I taught the course on the emerging church which takes 15 weeks. And so I am trying to put, to somehow summarize it, give you the most important, and answer the question that I was asked, and that is what impact this particular phenomena does on Seventh-day Adventism. So that is my job. So let us pray and then begin with this presentation. Dear Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for another opportunity, another chance to sit down to talk about an important subject. We ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need him to help us, and we place ourselves into your hands. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. 
My journey with the Emerging Church began in fall 2007. Although I have read the works of the critics, I primarily focus on the works of the emergents themselves. My research is based on the reading and analysis of the emergent literature, the reading of the literature written by critics, and my personal notes I took as I attended several of their conferences and workshops. The emerging church phenomenon is complex, perplexing, and sensitive. Information presented today about the emerging church and emergence Christianity will help you see that complexity. Although I will, at times, refer to religious systems, persons, and organizations, since that is unavoidable, my focus is, nevertheless, on ideas, concepts, teachings, ideologies, rather than on individuals themselves. If I disapprove of or I sound judgmental about an idea or a concept or an ideology, I should not necessarily be taken as judgmental. Some of my findings may touch the nerve and someone may be offended. If that is the case with you, I understand all I ask you to hear me to the end, and if you're still in disagreement, you can reach me at jjmarco.andrews.edu. I'm grateful to the emergence for a number of things, although I am their critic as well. The emergence are raising issues and posing challenges that are forcing all of us, Seventh-day Adventists, evangelicals, including Catholics, even atheists and non-Christians, to examine our lives, reassess our existential reality, and rethink our answers to the fundamental questions of life, both as individuals and as communities. The emergents are fine people, pleasant to be around. They seek a better world and are ready to engage the abuse, injustice, exploitation of both human and nature, prejudices, racism, doctrines that do not make sense, like the doctrine of eternal burning hell. Emergents reject that. Many are involved in making society better as they run programs for the poor, ostracized, oppressed, addicted, and forget, forgotten by society, and many times in many cases, Christians do that exactly. I go along with most of their questions, complaints, and ident identification of problems with traditional Christianity. I feel their pain. I strongly disagree with the answers and solutions they provide. The main target of their criticism, you have to keep this in mind, is the mainline Protestantism. They do not criticize Catholic, Orthodox, and Pentecostal Christianity. As you share with others what you are going to learn here, please do not misconstrue or misuse. Do not use my statements in divisive manner against those in whom you believe, 
you have detected emergent ideas and concepts. We should not engage in a witch hunt, but we need to recognize the language of the master seducer. Believe it or not, most of us are to a lesser or a greater degree infected. I don't want to say all of us. I always give room for some exceptions. We are all infected in one way or the other with some of these ideas. Before we can discuss the impact emergence Christianity makes on the Seventh-day Adventist movement, we need to say something about the emerging church, a subject matter which will take us to emergence Christianity. The emerging church appeared on the public scene around the turn of the 21st century. The Leadership Network, a national organization within the North American evangelicalism, in existence since 1984, with an objective to work with those who are not afraid to introduce innovation in the life of the churches, established the Young Leaders Network to address the problem of a large exodus of young adults from institutional churches. In 1997, it hired a 30-years-old Doug Paget to head it. On June 21, 2001, over a conference phone call, a group of so-called homeless, which means they claim they had no denominational affiliation, this group of pastors, theologians, and I'm mentioning some of them, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, Tim Keel, Chris Say, Tim Conder, Brad Cecil, they were pondering over how to call themselves. They settled on the emerging church. Now note that the years passed, the same group of people, or by individually, they were tagged by others as the emerging leaders or the emerging church. What I want to point out is you keep this in mind as we go, as we talk. The idea of emerging church existed before. They did not invent that in 2001. Major features of the emerging church. First of all, you must remember and never forget this. We are not talking about a new denomination. They do not aim to organize themselves into another church. It is rather a new way of doing Christianity. It is a new way of thinking about Christianity. The emergents like to see themselves and refer to themselves as emerging conversation. People often forget this fact because it is difficult to focus on something that is, that is inconspicuous and invisible. The emergence emphasized that society is undergoing a world, a major worldview shift since the 1960s. This is also crucial in understanding the nature of the emerging church or emergence Christianity. It is also crucial for the future of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. In my experience as a historian, as a church historian, I believe that we Seventh-day Adventists have not yet 
done serious study, and I don't think we really understand what the concept of worldview is, and we have not recognized this paradigm shift taking place in the last 60, 70 years. Now that may be a judgmental statement. That's my belief. Yes, we have books and articles, uh, Review and Health, Adventist Education, and so on, about worldviews, but I don't think we have yet mastered that particular subject. This is crucial in understanding the nature, okay, and so on. The emergence based their legitimacy on this historical reality that a fundamental tectonic epochal major worldview shift is taking place since the 1950s or 60s. That a major paradigm shift, some of them use the term cultural shift, has been taking place in the aftermath of the Second World War is well recognized by historians. Now, I, use, I just use the term World War II, but that, uh, that event alone is not the only thing. Uh, if you want to talk about the sin of, mo of modernity, and I'm using sin capital S, the sin of modernity, then we are talking about what happened between the decades of 1890s and 1945. What happened during that period of time is seen by the generations after the 1950s as the sin of the modern world. And we are talking about, and I'm going to just list them, without, don't have time to talk about it, colonization and everything that goes with it, racism, World War I, World War II, totalitarian regimes that happened between the two, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, the dropping of the two atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then we have decolonization and struggle with all that problems trying to get rid of racism and anti-Semitism. That whole package is called the sin of the modern world. Footnote. No human civilization has achieved what Western civilization has achieved in human history, in positive terms. No civilization, Western civilization, has achieved more than any other civilization in human history, in terms of technology, music, philosophy, you name it. However, no civilization has produced more evil and destruction upon humanity than Western civilization has done. I'll put those together. That is what post-1950s generation is trying to deal with. The emergents reject the idea that there are absolute norms and values which are applicable to or binding on all humans irrespective of culture and time. 
No narrative, according to them, dominates the narratives of other cultures and religions. No meta-narrative fully explains reality and no meta-narrative provides answers to the fundamental questions of life to all humans. For example, what are meta-narratives? Communism, Marxism, socialism, you name it, all these ideologies that come as a product of the modern world. What is Adventist meta-narrative? Not the Bible. The great controversy theme. Now, you talk to postmoderns, and they will tell you your meta-narrative, your story, doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't apply to everybody. How do you respond to it? That's the challenge. How do we respond to it? The emergents are ecumenical. To be an emergent without being ecumenical is impossible. The two ideas are inseparable, and emergents insist on inclusiveness and are strong critics of exclusiveness. Now, I just have to add question and answer period. Some of you may ask, I have to elaborate on this. These are code terms when they say we are inclusive. Trust me, they are exclusive as well, okay? I've seen that in action. That's question for the SDA is why are we uneasy about the ecumenical unity? We are uneasy. Now, we, we give answers to it. I know we have answers. I don't think that those answers are right on the dot, okay? There is an unwritten rule, but well understood by all. And this is, what you, this is the rule that emergents run by. Come join the ecumenical community and let us work together toward the betterment of society. Let us talk about ideas, beliefs, projects that bring us together. Let us not talk about ideas, beliefs, and projects that divide us. That's unwritten rule, but it's there. Anything that divides us is not acceptable. Now, and they usually would say, unity is divine, divisiveness is demonic. Now, doctrines by nature are divisive. Does the emergence shun them? A good example of why the SDAs cannot join the ecumenical movement was shown during the visit of Dr. Michael Kinnaman, the former General Secretary of National Council of Churches, to Andrews University campus in February 2012. A devout Christian and fine gentleman, one who, according to his own words, admires the SDAs for their devotion and respect for the Sabbath, Kinnaman publicly invited the uh, Andrews professors and students to join the ecumenical table and teach non-Adventists how to honor the Sabbath. Would you be willing to join the ecumenical table and teach us how to honor the Sabbath? Yes. The entire, almost the entire um, congregation uh, responded. I was sitting in about third, fourth row, so I don't know exactly whether every single, single person responded that way, but the, the response was loud. 
Having been pleased, Kinamon then added, would you make that your primary objective and make which days the Sabbath is the secondary issue? <laughs> this time, there was resounding no. And I watched him because I knew the issues. I knew who he is. I talked with him. I, I, read it. I watched his face. I could see for about a couple of seconds. He, he was surprised. It took him aback. He was kind of not know what to say. And then he responded, well, in that case, I guess you do not belong at the ecumenical table. Do you get the message? The ecumenical unity does not allow us to be ourselves, to proclaim the gospel in its entirety. The emergence insists worship should be intentionally experiential through all five senses. And participatory, all members of the audience should be involved in one way or the other somehow. No preacher or priest is favored over the members of the audience. And they would often stress, you probably heard this, this is their slogan. I'm spiritual, I am not religious. You hear all of that. My response to them is they say, wait a minute, you know, it's a code language. How can you be spiritual and not religious? And how can you be religious and not spiritual? The two always go together. The innovative worship style is the most attractive feature of the emerging church. It is also the contact point with the public. Conditioned by video audio technology, easily bored with the routines of life, and guided by feelings, people seek new and exciting. The attention of my students in my class does not pass 10 minutes. And my class period is 45 minutes. No, I'm sorry, 50 minutes. Which means, in order to keep their attention, I have to break it. You have to always keep that in mind. This is the just byproduct of culture that we have to deal with. Same thing goes for worship. Now, think about 50 minutes long sermons. How do you engage them, okay? For example, compare a typical Protestant worship, which we Seventh-day Adventists inherited, with the Catholic Mass or Eastern Orthodox liturgy, or even Pentecostal worship where everybody is engaged. Now, I'm not condemning Protestant worship, okay? Don't, don't take me wrong here. I'm just pointing out two differences. The, the point is, we need to do something about it. What? That's the question. The typical anti-Protestant type sermons are discarded by the, uh, the emergence because they are perceived as lecturing, like I'm lecturing now. See, I'm authority. You are listening. Emergents don't like that. And it, they see it as dominating. Like, you know, preacher knows. And I, who sit down, I supposedly don't know. And they see it as oppressive. Like, imposing. 
Instead of, they use homilies, I put that in quotation marks, whether, I, I don't think they are really homilies, they're just short talks. They are short and the audience is encouraged to participate with questions and comments. If available, they would have to decide someone who would do illustrations like cartoonish and it'll change fast. You probably saw that. Usually it's portrayed right there to decide in order to, make, to keep the audience, uh, because audience today is all video, more visual than auditory. Dan Kimball, recognized as the leader in the emerging church worship, says, quote, many of the very things that we, that we removed from our churches because they were stumbling blocks to seekers in previous generations are now the very things that are attractive to emerging generations. In other words, he's saying what the Protestants have thrown out of the church, we are now bringing back because that is what people want. Few among those who are attracted to the emerging church worship realize that the emerging church is far more than innovations in worship. This is attested by the emergence themselves and the most dangerous innovations. They are the introduction of the Eucharist. This is happening left and right, the Catholic mass, the images, relics, animation of nature, what I mean by that is putting spirit back into the matter, believing that spirit is in the forest, in the trees, in the, yeah, you can say that, pantheism or panentheism. And the sacred space for contemplation and meditation, which is always provided usually to the side somewhere a space where people are encouraged to go and meditate and contemplate and so on. Um, there are many innovations. Now, let me put a footnote here. I am for innovations, and I believe we Seventh-day Adventists must begin to do something. This is another one, Professor Dukan, how so many of you know him. He, uh, we both agree. We Seventh-day Adventists have not yet developed Adventist worship. We have not. No, we have not yet developed, created something that we can call this is Adventist worship. We inherited Protestant, we modified something, our hymnals, or this and that, but we really have not created something biblical that we can say this is worship based on biblical principles. We seriously have to address that issue. So I'm not against innovations. The question is what kind of innovations? You see, we all worship. Adventists, Catholics, Orthodox, pagans. All of us worship. It is how we worship. What do we do during the worship? And what is the purpose of our worship? See, that's the difference. So we, there's a lot of things needs to be addressed. The key innovation in worship, whether individual or community worship, is the introduction of spiritual disciplines. Now, this is sensitive. So I hope some of you uh, listen carefully and don't get offended. Spiritual disciplines, what are those? Anything can be a spiritual discipline. Centering prayer, prayer walk, prayer labyrinth, solitude, silence, fasting, Bible reading, 
so-called Lectio Divina, sacred reading, divine reading, submission, Sabbath, breath prayer, practicing the Eucharist. Anything can be spiritual discipline. What is the purpose behind these spiritual disciplines? Spiritual disciplines are activities individuals or believers corporately participate in towards spiritual development or, there is another term for it that they use, spiritual formation. Certain spiritual disciplines are created for individual spiritual formation. Other spiritual disciplines are created for corporate spiritual formation. According to Richard Rohr, a mystic and a Franciscan priest, all spiritual disciplines are created with an objective to achieve a state of contemplative consciousness. And it takes time to do that. Spiritual formation is invented by Christian mystics as a replacement, and I can call it counterfeit, to what Protestants call sanctification. Spiritual formation primarily occur, occurs through experience and participation. To experience God's presence or God or union with God, one has to be trained into contemplative consciousness. Many assume spiritual formation is just another phrase for traditional spiritual growth and sanctification. It's not. The purpose behind the spiritual disciplines is the development of the inner being to produce a specific pattern of behavior to achieve a state of contemplative consciousness. It is believed if one wants to experience divine love, divine forgiveness, divine suffering, divine presence, it is essential that he or she learns to think non-dualistically you don't think in terms of both and mode, but do, uh, but, okay, okay. She, is not, she is to think non-dualistically, both and, instead of dualistically, either or. And I'll explain that a little more. Non-dualistic, that means both and mode. Thinking is not judgmental. It does not distinguish. It is not predatory. According to Rohr, non-dualistic mode of thought is a higher, superior level of thinking in comparison to dualistic, either-or mode. Rohr says the mode of thinking practiced by Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists, Zen practitioners is superior to Western Christian analytical thinking which is influenced by the Greeks. According to mystics, there are several levels of consciousness or thinking. And depends on a mystic, they have these levels, some of them six, nine, some of them even 11. The lower levels are primitive, necessary for daily affairs of life. See. We human beings, we are created the way God created us. We are rational human beings. And we, he calls it dualistically. Um, it is simply, I, I'm calling it, and academically you could call it, analytical critical thinking. 
So you see, when I speak to you, your mind, as, as you're listening to me, your mind is processing information. And as, if I say, John is tall, your mind immediately compares tall versus whatever in your mind is for short, tall, big, small, all these comparisons. You have to think critically in order to understand conversation. What he is, or mystics are saying, is this kind of thinking prevents you from hearing your inner or divine from outside. So you have to learn to think differently. Think it in terms of computers. You know that there are different, we're not talking here about different programs like Microsoft Word versus Word Perfect. And I'm talking about that. We're talking about operating systems like PC versus Mac. They just don't work. They're two different operating systems. What, that's what they are talking about. You, we have to be trained, according to them, to learn to get this other operating system. To, and they think of this both end. In other words, this is all language. What they are trying to tell you is you contemplate, meditate, stop thinking. You want me to put it in vulgar language? Hypnosis, whether self-hypnosis or hypnosis from outside makes no difference. A mystic is a person who, through contemplation and meditation, reaches the highest level of contemplative consciousness, where minds stop thinking dualistically, that means analytically, critically, where the mind does not make judgments between right and wrong, good and bad. But it does not analyze, it does not distinguish. But at that moment, it is receptive to hear the voice of the Spirit in order to achieve union with the divine. Now, that's a subject I can talk for hours, so I have to stop here and just keep moving. Another very important distinct, uh, characteristic. The emergence are theistic evolutionists. And theistic evolutionism defines emergent theology and provides all assumptions and presuppositions to the fundamental questions of life. In other words, theistic evolutionism is the decisive factor in the making of the emerging worldview. See, so we come back to what I started with. The question is now, what is worldview? The emergent worldview defined by theistic evolutionism dictates revision of history and shapes a radically different philosophy of history that is in direct conflict with biblical worldview and the Seventh-day Adventist philosophy of history, if there is such one. That's another area. I don't think, and that, I, it's understandable because we Seventh-day Adventists, by nature, by, by inertia, somehow we shun speculation and we, we are quite straightforward. Uh, 
we don't have truly well-trained philosophers. So we Seventh-day Adventists never developed well-articulated Adventist philosophy. That's why I said if there is such one. Of course, there is some, uh, but I think we need to work more at it. Why do we need that? Well, in order to respond, in order that people understand us. The history of the Protestant Reformation is revised in the emergent literature. When you read emergent literature, emergent history books about the history of Christianity, it is a quite different version than traditional church history. I'm reading their history and I'm saying suddenly Martin Luther and John Calvin and Protestants and Catholics and it's all in one people. It's all in one group. It's all together. It's, it's completely revised. And you begin to wonder what's, what happened in the past. Suddenly what we have been teaching for years, decades, is not correct church history. So the emerging worldview defined by theistic evolutionism calls for engagement in social activism. That creates the kingdom of God, and I put it in italics for you to keep this in mind. Kingdom of God here and now. The second coming of Christ, which is at the very core of who you are. That's why you're called Adventist. Is rejected. The apocalyptic prophecies of the book of Revelation is negated or at best ridiculed. Brian McLaren, you know that guy? You heard of him? That guy doesn't believe in the second coming. I think it's ridiculous. Well, you don't find that in his books, but you find him here when you meet him in person and talk with him. Several statements caught my attention. One of them being Tony Jones' report. Now I'm going back to the first one. So I'm done with characteristics. And you've seen how that, in a way, affects us, where I think it challenges us to make some changes and reforms. But also, a lot of our young people are simply lost there. They don't know what to do. And so now I'm going back. I want to show you some other stuff. Tony Jones, in one of his books, says that that group of the so-called original quotation marks, original founders, uh, that they have been tagged by others as the emerging leaders in emerging church well before they decided on June 21, 2001, to call themselves the emerging church. That remark tells me that the idea of the emerging church existed well before 2001. So I decided to pursue, find books and articles which talk about the emerging church before 2001. <clears throat> so I pursued the leads. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Uh -uh. 
I pursued the leads and discovered that several books with the title The Emerging Church had been published before 2000. In June 1968, Roland Wilkins William Cult with a special assistant, Dr. Raymond Schmutt. Raymond Schmutt is a well-known theologian. They published a paperback in two volumes titled The Emerging Church, 1968, with imprimatur and nihil obstet. Do you know what that is? Anyone doesn't know? That is when a Catholic a theologian or Catholics write a book and they want uh, official approval by the authorities of the Catholic Church that their book should be uh, approved so that Catholics in general can read it because for many decades Catholics were told not to read books of printed by the published by Protestants. So uh, books will be submitted to the major office and the office will put an imprimatur. That means, it literally means that piece of literature, the book that you hold, is free of theological, doctrinal, moral errors. So that means this is published by the Catholic Church. So whatever it says there, I'm not making it up, it's, that's what they say. Two years later, in 1970, there is a book published by Bruce Larson and Ralph Osborne, two Presbyterian pastors. This is 1970, also called The Emerging Church. A year later, Maxwell White, a Pentecostal. This is a small, small brochure, about 60 pages, called The Emerging Church. John Carr from Scotland, the Emerging Church basically argues that the book of Ephesians argues for, the book of Ephesians talks about the Emerging Church that comes out right there in the first century. The uh, Johann Baptist Metz, well-known German scholar, translated from German into English, the Emerging Church, 1981. He was a um, student of well-known German scholar Karl Reiner. Karl Reiner was an expert at the Second Vatican Council. John Johann Matz. Matz was also present, but not an expert at the Second Vatican Council. The Emerging Church by Ronald Wilkins, the volume that I mentioned, published in 1968, was revised, updated, and republished in 18, 1981. The Emerging American Church by Dan Scott, former Pentecostal who left the movement and became um, uh, emergent. This book is very interesting because on, sev on several places throughout the book, he, he uh, mentions Seventh-day Adventists like an off-cuff remark, you know, just uh, doesn't specifically mention target Adventists, but he mentions us, you know, and kind of puts us, you know, unimportant. Uh, the Church Emerging from Vatican II, written by Dennis Doyle. This is a professor at, I believe, University of Cincinnati or Dayton. And uh, I had this book uh, several, a couple of decades on my shelf. Uh, one of those I buy and they sit on the shelf and only I read them later. You know. But it's very important because he connects directly some issues here. 
that you will see later. The Open Church by Michael Novak. Michael Novak, a Catholic reporter, published a book in 1964. This is right in the middle of the Second Vatican Council. He was reporting from the Second Vatican Council to New York papers and magazines, and in the process he writes a book, and he calls the Catholic Church, as it comes out of the Second Vatican Council, he calls it the Open Church. The Living Church, written by Hans Kung, notice, 1963, this is right there at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, which means the book is written before the opening of the Council, and uh, he is very much supportive, and you'll see what role he plays there. The Resilient Church is written by Avery Dulles. It's written about 12 years later after the Council. This one is written with the purpose where he is assessing to see whether the church, the Catholic Church, is living up to the decisions made at the Second Vatican Council. And so, but it's very useful, okay, in understanding what is happening. So these are the books. Don't think that I invented them. I got hold of them. I own them. Uh, they are there. If anybody tries to destroy all of them, I still have them. They are there. Okay. They're the real stuff, okay? Now, let us go to the Second Vatican Council. In other words, literature takes me back to the Second Vatican Council. It is the Catholic Church which was so seen, perceived, and understood to be the emerging church and the first, those two volumes in particular, what they are saying is, now you can take it both ways. You can say, what is being perceived is that the church, capital C, that means all Christians, is emerging. Or you can say it is the Catholic church that it's emerging. And so however you see it, because the meaning is there for both. It's, that's how it's seen. You remember I mentioned theistic evolutionism? Now, do you know what theistic evolutionism is? You, oh, some people do, some people don't. Okay, those of you who don't, you know what Darwinian evolutionary theory is. Okay, Darwinian evolutionary theory argues that everything you see on this planet Earth and everything you see in the universe, that everything came into being, into existence, through an evolutionary process, which started approximately 15 billion years ago. And the evolutionary process brings us to where we are. And what drives the evolutionary process is the principle of natural selection. Well, and of course, according to Darwin, forget about God and supernatural. It's not even taken in consideration. Everything that comes into being or came into being, and that, according to Darwinian theory, evolutionists, evolutionary process still goes on. You have to remember that. 
But the principle, the, the argument is <clears throat> all of that is driven by the principle of natural selection. And therefore, you have the argument that only those organisms which are fit to survive, they survive. That means survival of the fittest. Now, there were people, Christians, and you will see, I will come to show you, who stepped in and argue that evolutionary process is driven not by the principle of natural selection, by, by the principle of emergence. Did you catch that? God steps in in the evolutionary process. And God becomes part of the evolutionary process. That is theistic evolutionism. Okay? And I'll, now I'll continue, and then we'll come back to the question and answer period. Now, those who elected Angelo Giuseppe Rancali, the Pope, on October 28, 1958, did not expect him to make radical moves. He was in an age, a short month short of 77, and the cardinals most likely chose him because he was liked by many. Three months after his election, on January 1959, John 23rd announced his intent to convene a council. Everyone in Rome was surprised. There was no apparent need for a council. Every single council, ecumenical council prior, since Council of Nicaea, there were 20 of those, every single council was convened because the church was facing a serious problem, a challenge. And every council dealt with those challenges, and every council was dealing with certain wrong doctrines and coming up with new positions, okay? This is now a surprise. <clears throat> there was no apparent need, need for a council. Now, many of the conservative cardinals in the Vatican. They believed that he most likely wants to continue the first Vatican Council of 1869-1870, which was interrupted and never concluded because of Napoleonic Wars between Napoleonic War between Prussia and France. So, what happens is that he further clarified that the council will be called Second Vatican Council, which means he's not interested dealing with issues of the First Vatican Council. This clearly made, uh, made conservatives even more apprehensive. It meant that he will not continue Vatican II. Now, not, no, no, Vatican I. Not only why, but the Vatican clerics were wondering what was council supposed to do. 
in his announcements on January 25, 59, John 23rd spoke of two aims. And now listen, this is very important here to understand. Number one, his objective is to promote, quote, the enlightenment, edification, and joy of the entire Christian people, end of quote. Two, to extend a renewed cordial invitation to the faithful of the separated communities to participate, notice he does not use the term return, to participate with us in this quest for unity and grace for which so many souls long in all parts of the world. At this point, I just wanted to insert the Second Vatican Council did not come up with any new doctrine. And when it was over, the Protestants missed the point. Well, what happened? Nothing happened. But they missed something, and now scholars are noticing the Second Vatican Council changed the language and the style of talking and the attitude. And only now we see the results. But we are talking of uh, two generations gone. Pardon me? Louder. Okay, I'll try it. Try to do the best. I'm sorry. Pope John 23 appointed preparatory commissions to prepare the documents for the discussions. Members of the commissions were aided by the experts in Italian called parity. 480-some experts were appointed by him or his successor, Paul VI. The preparations for the council were massive, like never in the history of the previous councils. The preparations took two and a half years. Once at the council, hardly any of these documents passed through without revision. Several of them were completely revised and outright rewritten. John 23rd opened the council on October 11, 1962, but did not see its conclusion. He passed away on June 3, 1963. He was succeeded by Archbishop Milan of Milan, Giovanni Battista Mantini, who took the name Paul VI. Whereas Rancali was an outsider of the Vatican Curia, because he comes from a poor family, he's kind of an outsider, Montini was an insider of the Curia. And obviously some hoped that a new pope would abandon the council, and others feared that he would continue it. Now you have to remember at this point, I have to add, Not all Catholics think the same. Like all, in all organizations, you have to remember that. Not all Jesuits think the same. There are always factions, different things, and all of that. So there were conservatives, what, use that term loosely, quotation, I can't, conservative, okay, that means quotation marks, okay? And I don't like these terms, conservative, liberals, all that, because they are misleading, but nevertheless. And there are also the other side known as progressives or liberals. 
And that existed even in the 1930s, 1940s, 60s. So, um, but Paul VI was to some degree sympathetic to the progressives and the new theology group because there was a group in existence. They called themselves progressives. That's how they saw themselves. It is the conservatives in the 1940s and 1950s who dubbed them new theologians, new theology. And uh, you will see in a moment, they were often condemned like, ah, they're teaching new theology. So it was an, like, it was known in French, la nouvelle théologie, it was the new theology school of thought that existed. And these were centered in the city of, uh, of, um, of Paris. From the beginning, it was clear that there would ba be battles over the control of the council, as one document after the other was getting approval through the vote of the council. It was becoming clear that the conservatives, led by Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani, were losing the battle. The progressive voices were carrying the day, but not to the extent to claim total victory. Matter of fact, the battle for the Catholic soul, if I may use that phrase, continues to our days. Scholars agree that the work of the councils did not end with its closing in 1965. It merely set the tone and indicated the direction for the future of the church. And if you can notice how it what was happening when Pope Paul VI died, the new pope that came, he took the name, John Paul, and became Paul I. Now notice, never in the church, never in the history before, Pope will take two names as one. By choosing a name, usually, popes indicate the policy, where they go. By choosing the name John Paul, he indicated that he will continue the policy of John 23 and Paul 6. That means the spirit of Vatican II. He lived only for about a month, then comes a new pope, Cardinal Wojtyla, elected again, John Paul II, which means he is continuing the policy. Now, John Paul II, Cardinal Wojtyla, was present at the council. He was leaning toward progressives, but enough conservative not to be estranged from conservatives. You see, the popes had to be careful how they handled this situation because the conservative wing in the Vatican was quite powerful. And they didn't want to antagonize. So the popes would often step in and kind of try to make statements, use the language to kind of keep peace inside the house. But the progressives are winning, okay? So after John Paul comes who? Ratzinger, he is also leaning toward more conservative. So when he was elected, the public said, ooh, this guy is going to be, uh, take us back. Well, notice he chooses the name Benedict the Sixteenth. Benedict is reminder to the Benedict Fifteenth. In other words, Ratzinger kind of indicated that he'll make a step back. But Ratzinger did nothing serious to challenge the authority of and spirit of Second Vatican Council. And then he retires. 
and then was, was what was very interesting for me is now I was waiting and said, okay, well, I was expecting that the new Pope will take the name of John, 23, uh, John Paul III. That was my expectation. Lo and behold, when they said Francis, and no Pope ever called himself Francis. And when I heard that, I said, wow, that is, now I can see it. Now, why did I react in that way? Let me tell you a story what happened when I was at Dallas, uh, uh, a, a convention workshop organized by the, uh, the emergence, the, whole, the, the title of the convention was The Emerging Church. Brian McLaren was there, Richard Rohr was there, and a number of other people. Brian McLaren, uh, Richard Rohr and Brian McLaren were the two top speakers there. In the closing uh, hour of the meeting on Sunday morning, uh, Richard Rohr was speaking, and now keeping audience that the audience was considered about 450 people. I estimate that by counting the tables and how many people sit around the table and all that. So he's and most of those people are Protestants, and all of them are, with exception of me, and I don't know, maybe somebody else, but all of those people are basically some kind of leaders. They come from their respective places, whether they are pastors, teachers, Sabbath school, Sunday school teachers, doesn't matter. They are some kind of leaders. They come there, they learn, they attend, they go through workshop, and then they go back to promote all of these ideas, okay? So um, he's talking to them, and then this is what Richard Rohr said. And this is basically a nutshell what I'm trying to present to you here. Richard Rohr said... For 400 years, we Protestants have been doing what you Protestants were doing to us. When the Protestant Reformation started, you Protestants began to attack us Catholics, that we are teaching wrong doctrines, that we are behaving this way or that way. And then we had the Council of Trent. And Council of Trent solidified our position, separated two of us, and for 400 years, we were fighting wars with each other. We were publishing books against each other. We would not put the foot into the church of the other, although the churches were just across the street. And he said, we... We're shooting arrows at each other for 400 years. What we, he said, we Catholics fell into the Protestant trap. Because you Protestants were taking the Bible and trying to prove to us doctrinally that we were wrong. And he says, what we have done, we organized ourselves and you probably heard of Dominican order. You know what Franciscans are, Dominicans are, all of that. And you brother mentioned Jesuits, okay? Jesuits are organized right there in about 1540s, just a little before the opening of the Council of Trent. You know who the Jesuits are. The Jesuits are selected young men who are highly intelligent, excellent in learning, 
who are trained to be intellectual athletes, to study, write books, and prove the Protestants wrong. Now, Dominicans and Franciscans, are, these are the two large Catholic orders that go back to the late Middle Ages. Those two orders, both of them value education, except that the Dominicans emphasize education, whereas Franciscans emphasize prayer and contemplation. But both of them appreciate, and both of them have, they contemplate and meditate. And so Dominicans are the ones who, through argumentation, want to prove the opponent wrong. So Richard Rohr said, for 400 years, we were doing what you Protestants were doing. And we finally recognized by the 1950s that we are making a mistake. And we have decided at the Second Vatican Council to stop dealing with you Protestants the Dominican way. And we decided to do it Franciscan way. Now, do you know what they are talking about? We're not going to argue with you anymore. We are not going to say that you Protestants are wrong. We are not going to say that you are our apostate brothers or that you have to return. And none of that talk. All we ask you, let us pray together. Now, a lot of people think, well, oh, that's, that's not important. That is crucial. And when the new pope announced, I'm Francis, I said, this guy, and now observe his statements, observe his behavior. He is, in my opinion, the best embodiment of the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. It took two generations, but it's happening. Okay, as early as... Uh, okay, let me go to these slides. Prepare yourself for questions and answer later. I already gave you some extra material here anyway. But you need to see this, okay? Uh, read this as fast as you can. As early as August 60, John 23 appointed Henry de Lubac. It's another well-known theologian whose ideas were previously condemned by Humani Generis. You'll see what that is in a minute. Um, as parity to Ottaviani. You see what John did. John gave to Ottaviani, who was known as a staunch conservative. He gave him responsibility to organize commissions who will put together documents for the council. And so Octaviani, with his ten, there were 10 commissions which were putting together documents. The Second Vatican Council eventually produced or, or processed 16 documents. But John appointed to each of these commissions 
one or two or three of experts who would, but experts have no right to vote. They just have a right to, to, uh, to consult or to advise. But Henry de Lubac tells us, he, when he was sitting in those commissions, uh, call it com committees, he had very little room to influence. However, when the document would come before the council, which is now about more than 2,500 people attendance, Henry de Lubac now has influence because people know who he is. And this is where these experts would make this contribution. Now, the scholars agree today. Carl Rayner, Henry de Lubac, Yves Kangar, and many of the other well-known theologians are the most influential theologians at the Second Vatican Council. All the documents, and matter of fact, the most important documents, because there are categories of importance, none of the documents prepared by the commissions ended up in the same form. All of them were rewritten because the council would refuse and send them back, back and forth, back and forth. And the documents that ended up were documents shaped and influenced by the new theology experts. Not what Ottaviani intended it to be. So it was very, when I look at this, how John handled all of that, it was, I don't want to call him crafty, but he did it. Now, I have not mentioned one name, and I leave that because I'm going to talk about this afternoon at 3.30. The man who is the most responsible for theistic evolutionism, because all of this new theology, they are all theistic evolutionists. Theistic evolutionism, mysticism, and call to holiness, and postmodernism, or you can call that approach to reality, all of these converge. The person responsible is well-known scientist, paleontologist, and at the same time, well-known theologian and member of Jesuit order, Pierre Tayard de Chardin. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.